To shot reverse shot. I'm Matt Risby. Uh, hello, and uh, joining me as always via the uh, miracle of satellite technology is Ed Davis. How the devil are you, sir? Yeah, very good. I am still recovering a little bit from watching the tale of Princess Kaguya yesterday, the newish Studio Ghibli film. New, uh, depending on where you live. It came out over here about two months ago, and it's just come out in the UK. Mm. Um, it's very good. Uh, it's incredibly sad. Brilliant. So. Uh, that's uh, kind of another hit for Ghibli. Yes, if you want to see, it's also interesting because it's by Isio Takahaki Hati. No, Ishio. Oh, <laughs> it's by the co-founder of Studio Ghibli, whose name I can't get. Right. Um, who uh, previously directed things like um, Only Yesterday and Grave of the Fireflies. And uh, he's, his work is always very interesting because he is essentially someone who directs animation in a very realistic way. You know, his films always look and framed as if they are live action, mm. which is uh, obviously quite different from Miyazaki, who does everything fantastical. Uh, and it was it, I was watching it and thinking this reminds me of, weirdly of King of the Hill, right. which is obviously a sitcom, an animated sitcom that was shot in an incredibly naturalistic way and looked in purely as if uh, it could have been made of real live actors but wasn't so that was it was very interesting mm. um grave of the fireflies is a laugh right isn't it yeah it's uh <laughs> if you want to just be devastated and cry for weeks then mm. it's a certainly a, a good watch mm. it's a film as well that like when i watched it i like thought i couldn't get past there was there's just like a massive gaping plot hole in the middle i can't mm. remember can't remember the specifics of it but like like spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen Grave of the Fireflies, but they starved to death at the end. But like yeah. the the brother had an ample opportunity to to get himself out of this 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 kind of pickle they were in, but just didn't do it. And at the end, it's just like, oh, that's a shame. I didn't do that. Now they're dead. Everyone, that's terrible. Hmm. Yeah, I think isn't it based on a real life incident? If if so, then that kid was an idiot and deserved to die. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. What uh, what's been happening in in film this week? It's been uh, a busy one as usual. It never stops. Um, but you know, we've we've got the kind of uh, uh, the four one one. We know what's going down. Uh, what's caught my eye this week um, is uh, James Bond. Appears to have uh, stolen Sterling Archer's turtleneck. Tactile neck. Yeah, tactile neck. Um, and uh, a jolly good look it is too. I hope he'll be um, phrasing his way through the next Bond <laughs> film. Um, and the, just to say, on a side note, the, the latest season of Archer, have you been watching it? It's bloody great. I have. I, I particularly like the most recent one set in Wales um, for the uh, casting of Matthew Reese, most famous for over here for starring in The Americans, where he has a, a very convincing American accent. So to hear him with his natural Welsh brogue was uh, was very fun. I haven't I haven't got that far yet. I've not got. I've, I don't think I've seen the last two episodes. But uh, yeah, yeah but the one where they go to Wales is is really funny, and it also stars a British comedic actor whose name escapes me, who's one of those guys who just shows up in everything. Uh, just doing one of the voices. I think, uh, yeah. If you if you wanted to choose someone to just voice a random English person <laughs> on this show, he's the perfect choice. Mm, yeah. Um, 
there's been a bit, a bit of a kind of kerfuffle this week about the uh, a Scarface remake, which seems odd given that Scarface, uh, the Al Pacino film, uh, comedy, I like to call it, from the uh, 1980s, is a remake. Yeah, that's one of those things where I didn't really care that much because I don't like Scarface. Mm, it's much. quite stupid, it's, isn't it? Scarface. It's a very stupid film, yeah. Um, it's certainly one of, I think it's one of the lesser De Palma films. Um, stylistically, it looks very nice, and but it's so overblown and written in that whole, you know, Oliver Stone high on coke, mm-hmm. just bashing away at the keyboards and probably not having a great d- degree of uh, quality control, much like uh, Stephen King when he wrote Cujo, mm-hmm. a, f- a book that he says he has no memory of writing <laughs> because <laughs> because he was so high. Mm. Yeah. So I think, like, uh, there's not really much to be upset about there, is there? Um, I don't think there's many kind of Paul Mooney fans that are kind of uh, <laughs> upset about it. Because, um, yeah, I mean, the, I think the best version of Scarface is their Lonely Island video where Michael Bolton plays him. Yeah, uh, although I think still think that one of the best things about the De Palma version of Scarface is the way it ends with, like, dedicated to Howard Hawks. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> we look at it and think, much like the same way that Gus Van Zandt's Psycho ends with dedicated to Alfred Hitchcock, it's, like, it's not much of a tribute. No, you can hear, if you just kind of turn your head slightly, you can hear the very high-pitched uh, squeal of uh, of their <laughs> graves on spin cycle. Um, yeah, that's uh, Justin of... Edwards is the guy I was thinking of, who, um, if you look up his list of credits, he's just a guy who always shows up to play like a policeman or something in... Uh, in British comedies, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, is he uh, kind of like uh, ginger-haired and kind of slightly bearded? Uh, sometimes he is. Generally, he's just he's kind of quite a lumbering kind of large fellow. Right. I think we should probably do an episode devoted uh, to this chap uh, and his <laughs> many kind of screen credits. Uh, the kind of Peter Lorre of uh, of British kind of TV comedy. Um, yeah, without the goggly eyes, one would hope. Um, some good news for Eddie Murphy fans. Uh, we are kind of early Eddie Murphy fans. He's going back to doing something serious, although Lee Daniels is directing it, so it could be quite ridiculous. He's uh, going to play Richard Pryor's dad. Yeah, that was a news story that I was very, very excited about, uh, unlike a lot of people online who seem to be saying, you know, why the hell is Lee Daniels being allowed to make a film about Richard Pryor? Mm. And uh, I understand that on one level because uh, Lee Daniels is someone with a decidedly mixed track record but at the same time his love of overblown melodrama and lurid sensibilities seems like a very good match for uh, Richard Pryor's life story which obviously encompasses drug addiction and growing up around prostitutes and all of these sort of things Mm. I think it seems like it's you can definitely see why he would be attracted to it and um, I think he could I would hope that he would unleash something in Eddie Murphy because he does seem to enjoy um, crackerjack performances in his films from uh, Monique and Precious to Taraji P. Henson in Empire. He seems to be someone who can provide material that allows people to really just let loose. And uh, Eddie Murphy's been, well, he's not been on uh, on screen for three years, but even when he was on screen, he was being a bit reserved. Mm. I hope there's a scene in it where Nicole Kim pisses on his face. Um, just well, just because I just want to see that. Um, and yeah, uh, yeah, I think is Lee Daniels uh, the same Lee Daniels who was like the cinematographer for Richard Linklater back in the day. Uh, I don't think so. No. Oh, that's a shame. 
be, be, be an interesting uh, progression for his career. Mm, I did think that. Um, speaking of career progression, marvellous segue there by myself. Um, the trailer for M. Night Shyamalan's TV show, Wayward Pines, dropped this week. I don't know if you saw it. I did. Um, it's basically kind of Twin Peaks. Um, mm-hmm. um, but it got me kind of thinking, uh, has anyone's kind of stock fallen kind of further and quicker than M. Night Shyamalan's? It's hard to think of anyone who... Uh, maybe the Wachowskis? Mm. I mean, obviously, but the, the the key difference there is the Wachowskis do still have, you know, their defenders. They do have people like me who will go to the go to the map for um, for Cloud Atlas or for Speed Racer and things like that as works of crazy pop art, whereas it's very, very hard to find people who will earnestly defend The Last Airbender. Mm-hmm. Or After Earth, because at a certain point, pretty much everyone abandoned and much like Shyamalan. And also, his he his stock has plummeted to such a level that he his name is not wasn't touted in the advertising for After Earth. It was just advertised as a Will Smith vehicle, and they tried to keep his name out of it as much as possible. Mm. Whereas you know, at least with Jupiter Ascending, it was still being advertised as from the creators of the Matrix trilogy. Yeah, I seem to remember that, like around the time that the happening came out, some kind of mm. uh, kind of uh, internet wag had made a a graph of uh, the rotten the average Rotten Tomato score for M Night Shyamalan's film, starting with The Sixth Sense, which wasn't his first film. He made a couple of like little kind of uh, low budget comedies before that, um, but yeah, starting with The Sixth Sense was like up kind of like ninety five percent or whatever, and then everyone it basically had been kind of like maybe a fifteen to twenty percent drop in uh kind of like uh reception uh for film it's just like like on the kind of current course all these films would be into kind of negative figures um <laughs> and yeah it was kind of it's kind of crazy that like well that said uh i did see the sixth sense like kind of fairly recently like last year and it doesn't really hold up very well it's not very good oh that's a shame mm. i haven't seen it since Got it on video probably in 2001, and I haven't seen it since then, but I remember being very creeped out by it. Mm. Unbreakable, I liked. Uh, mm. um, and that, you know, but then that's more the tone and the feel. Um, yeah. But yeah, Signs has a lot of cool stuff in it, even though uh, a lot of the finale is dumb, yeah. such as the way it suggests that uh, God killed his wife so that she could save her dying words, swing away. So that at one point you could tell Joaquin Phoenix how to swing a bat. Yeah, to kill an alien who would yeah. in, who are um, allergic to water and are killed by water, but choose to invade a planet that is eighty five percent water um, mm, and has water in the atmosphere. <laughs> so really, they should have gotten straight off the ship and then just mm. immediately burst into flames. Should have gone to Mars. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was a fucking stupid idea. I think, I think the Shyamalan uh, kind of tale, the cautionary tale, is that. Um, if you're going to be a one-trick pony, make sure your trick's good, um, <laughs> because it, you know his really wasn't. Um, yeah, well, um, kind of. Lastly, um, Kevin Smith's making more acts too, and I couldn't give a fuck. <laughs> so I mean, obviously he's he's doing that to please uh, his friends, I guess. Mm. Yeah, he said there was a the, the the AV Club, as is often the case. I believe it was an article written by Sean O'Neill, who's their their news editor, who is quite um, acid tongued and witty. He he wrote it as saying that Smith's announcement said that he was doing it pretty much just to 
please himself, and so Sean O'Neill wrote so he so I, a rare moment of self indulgence from Kevin Smith. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Who's who now has like seventeen podcasts, so he's he's not one who lacks for opportunities to indulge himself. Mm, yeah, absolutely. He's kind of cinema's uh, kind of greatest onanist, I would probably say. Um, I I was saying on Facebook that I I kind of missed the six month period where he got so pissy and petulant over the response to Coppal that he said he was going to retire. Because mm-hmm. at the time I was like, well, that's just stupidity and you know saying that people don't like this film and but and then saying oh they should give me a chance because it was just made for money it's like that's not really an excuse there you're just basically saying well you've got to be <laughs> you've got to be nice to me i wasn't really trying yeah <laughs> which is not the best defense that was around but the time I'm, that he started that podcast which was he, him and just general kind of uh joe public's reviewing films because he was so tired mm-hmm. of these professional film critics and their their uh, their views on films. He wanted to get like what what the real people of America thought of films. Yeah, it spawned a very uh, inglorious period for him. Mm. But I'd much rather he was doing that than just making sequels that no one was asking for. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, all this kind of like waffle aside, um, what are we talking about this weekend? We're talking about films based on the work of uh, Bill Shakespeare. Oh, good old Bill Shakespeare. Um, William Shakespeare walks into a bar, Ed, and the barman mm. says, Wow, you're William Shakespeare. I thought you were dead. That's not where you <laughs> thought that joke was going, is it? Uh, but no, that's one of my favourites. Uh, yeah, it's quite a lot of William Shakespeare kind of based films. I looked it up. There are more than 400. Does that surprise you? It, it does not. Um it does make, surprise me that he's apparently more prolific than Joe Swanberg. Mm, yeah. He must be getting up there, or he'll be there one day. Mm. Um, well, no, it doesn't It doesn't surprise me at all, because something that I think is the first thing to say about Shakespeare's work is it's incredibly malleable, even though it all seems... To, you'd think it would all be tied to a very specific um, point in time. It's work that can be kind of reshaped and grafted onto pretty much any genre you want mm-hmm. and reimagined for different generations so it's it's unsurprising that so many people have have for so long much as people have tried to do imaginative restagings of it in the theatre and are still finding new ways to mess with the formula it's unsurprising that so many people have done the same in cinema mm. Shakespeare's done pretty well after he died he's kind of like an olden days Tupac <laughs> In, in in a way, uh, he's kind of done. His death was a good career move for him. So, do you think that his uh, his he also moved to Cuba? <laughs> yeah, I think he did figuratively. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, the kind of the idea came from this. There's a couple of uh, kind of like new Shakespeare adaptations kind of knocking about. Uh, it was announced this week that um, they're doing a uh, 300 style take on Romeo and Juliet called Verona, which literally no one wants. Uh, I don't know why you'd do that. Um, and uh, um, uh, Ethan Hawke has got a new version of Cymbeline coming out, which is interesting because he's doing it with, uh, is it Michael Almedia, the guy's name? Who is yeah. a documentary maker and directed a couple of episodes of Deadwood, I think. Um, uh, but didn't really do anything after he directed a version of Hamlet, which had the great casting of uh, Bill Murray as Claudius, uh, which is pretty good. Um, but yeah, he's just kind of come out of retirement and made another Shakespeare with Ethan Hawke. And... The kind of cast of that is uh, is kind of ridiculous. Uh, it's yeah, Ethan Hawke, um, Ed Harris, Millie Jovovich, 
uh, Anthony Elchin, uh, the kind of uh, 90s three-way dream party of Vondi Curtis Hall, Bill Pullman and Delroy Lindo, uh, which, you know, can't be beaten. But it makes me think and kind of wonder, you always kind of get these huge, mightily impressive ensemble casts come out for uh, kind of cinematic Shakespeare adaptations, especially the kind of glossier ones. Um, why do you think that is? Do you think that, like, there's this kind of assumption that Shakespeare equals quality acting, or do you think there's kind of uh, perhaps frustrated film actors wanting to flex a few uh, theatrical muscles? It certainly seems that way. It, you can look at that as an explanation, for example, for Keanu Reeves deciding to a- appear in Bran- uh, Kenneth Branagh's Much Ado About Nothing, mm-hmm. a-, a role for which he is ill-suited. Absolutely. <laughs> to, uh, to say the least. I mean, he's not terrible in it, but he is still, he doesn't really, his his particular rhythms and his particular accent don't really suit the uh, the bard's work. But there is definitely still a sense that Shakespeare, because it's classical and hundreds of years old and British, is something that serious actors do. Mm-hmm. And people who either are, you know, film actors who maybe start on the stage or do theatre on the on the side, uh, looking for the opportunity to really sink their teeth into something. But also, I think there is probably something driving most actors where they they want to maybe be in the definitive screen version of. A particular play, mm-hmm. um, of which I'd say they're probably very, very few, because the the plays are constantly being reimagined for different eras and different audiences. But I think there is because it's something that everyone can do has done at one point or another, and so many people have done different plays and different takes on plays that there's always a desire to either offer a new take on it or to offer some sort of definitive version. Mm. It's interesting you kind of mentioned Keanu Reeves and. And uh, much to do there that, like you know, his Don John uh, is not good, but uh, mm. Denzel Washington's Don Pedro spot on, and uh, Michael Keaton's Dogbury is a lot of fun as well. Yeah, yeah, that seems to be in a role he was kind of born to play. But um, on the kind of flip side, if you look at Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet, uh, the kind of very lavish uh, production, um, some of the casting in there uh, seems uh, mightily geared towards the uh, not stunt casting, I guess. But just kind of like, oh, hang on, is that Jack Lemon? Fucking hell, it is Jack Lemon. Uh, <laughs> and like literally, every, like Billy Crystal's in it as one of the grave diggers, and it's like literally every other person is like a super famous person, and then Ken Dodd's in it. <laughs> who, uh, yeah, do you remember who Ken Dodd plays? No, he plays Yorick in a flashback. Um, oh, okay. Which, like, I don't want to, I don't want to kind of besmirch Kenneth Branagh's directorial choices. But I don't think you need a flashback for Yorick because it's cinema, it's theatres and, and kind of uh, uh, the world of uh, narrative fiction's greatest flashback that, you know, your lead character is holding a man's skull in his hand. <laughs> we don't really need a, you know, a pictorial uh, or, kind of, or kind of a scene kind of uh, describing who he is or what he did. Yeah, it's like this iconic moment that stood for 500 years. I think I can I can do a rewrite on it. Mm, okay, I'll just have a flashback to Ken Dobb with a feather duster. So it's kind of what <laughs> it is, um, and yeah, uh, kind of uh, yeah, a bit much. But the 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 Hamlet, uh, the Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet, uh, that kind of what do you think that or the the Laurence Olivier version is kind of probably tied for kind of most iconic and kind of uh, definitive version of that play on screen. For my money, it'd probably go for the Olivier just because. I really, really love what he does in terms of making it, trying to break it out from the 
it just being a stage play because there he brings in a lot of um, sort of German expressionist stuff. He the castle there is more the castle of Hamlet's mind than anything else. Mm-hmm. You know, it's lots of very deep dark shadows and lots of geometry that doesn't really make any sense in terms of you know no one would design a castle to look this way for practical purposes, but mm. for the purposes of looking very very cool on screen, it's a it's an amazing. There's a, some amazing choices made there. Um, and I like the idea of taking it and making it sort of almost Kafkaesque in its realization of uh, making the inner turmoil of Hamlet's mind uh, realized through the set design. Mm. I think that, that you've kind of brought up something there that that um, all adaptations of Shakespeare are going to struggle against, where you have this kind of constant fight when you're adapting a novel, for example, of having every single fucker in the audience who's read it thinking this isn't as good because I've read the book and I've imagined it differently. Mm-hmm. But when you're adapting Shakespeare, what you're fighting against from the off is uh, inherent staginess. Yeah. Um, does Shakespeare lend itself kind of better to being adapted to film because there's a lot more kind of dynamism in the sense that you you know it's a whole new world of language? Or does that kind of work against it and, and kind of make it even more stagey than just adapting, I don't know, something like Barefoot in the Park or something? I think it depends on the directors. I think in the case of if you have someone like Kenneth Branagh who obviously comes from theatre but has clearly got a quite a strong cinematic eye. You know, if you look at something like his version of um, Henry V, where he shoots it pretty much like a Vietnam act, like a Vietnam War movie. Mm. <laughs> that seems to be his approach to it, is to make it very gritty and dark and, and more visceral. There he's trying to, he brings a cinematic flourish to it. Or um, a, a version of the film of Macbeth that I watched earlier today, the Roman Polanski version, you have someone whose background is entirely in film. Uh, Polanski never directed theatre, and he shoots the film in such a way as to where from the very off you think, okay, this is a film. Mm. This isn't just a restaging of a play. It opens on mud flats, and you can see for miles around, and it's just completely flat. And it calls to mind um, that thing that Hitchcock said about Jaws, where he said it was the first film where you couldn't see the proscenium, and where it just seemed like a, a real, like a real thing happening in front of you. And that's kind of what his version of Macbeth is. It looks like. Uh, it just has a completely cinematic feel to it and he's not afraid to, for example, cut things from the play and then just have moments of where the film relies just purely on the images to tell the story, such as the moment when Duncan's men are approaching uh, Macbeth's castle and instead of you know, cutting to the next scene and the next bit of dialogue, the camera just stays still and watches them walk towards the castle as the music slowly swells. Mm. And there it's just saying, you know, you know we can use the tools of cinema to really sell the, the menace of what's happening. Mm. Um, it's kind of interesting. We kind of talk about Macbeth. Um, we mentioned it in our preview episode uh, for the year, but there is an upcoming uh, version, which is kind of intriguing given that it stars uh, Michael Fassbender as uh, Macbeth and uh, Marion Cotillard as Lady Macbeth, which are those two kind of uh, amazing bits of casting. Uh, mm-hmm. Um, but it's also kind of notable because it's directed by the guy who did Snowtown, uh, which is not who you'd find expect to find at the helm of a uh, a new version of Beth. 
that's one of the, the again one of the cases where I mean I don't know if that guy's got a background in theatre but Snowtown is a very very harsh film <laughs> it's very very grim and depressing and I think that if he can bring that level of, of kind of intensity to it it could make for a very interesting version mm. and I think that that is something that's missing from say a lot of the you know the Franco Zeffirelli versions of the Shakespeare plays or um, most of the uh, Olivier versions is they the, the staginess of it is a distancing effect and it becomes hard to really get invested in the, the drama of it mm. so if you can remove those elements as much as possible then it's a lot easier to kind of get swept up in the storytelling um kind of in kind of the you've just reminded me of kind of the word Zeffirelli uh, kind of just brings back nightmares of being forced to watch those versions in in kind of uh, English literature, mm-hmm. kind of high school. Um, there's kind of nothing wrong with those 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 kind of versions of the film, um, but they kind of have a certain feel to them. Um, do you think that like more modern uh, versions of uh, Shakespeare stories, um, the kind of like the opposite of that Zeffirelli uh, approach, um, kind of takes that kind of prestige element out of it in the sense that all the adaptations before that were seen as these kind of massively worthy uh, kind of attempts to bring kind of a, a work of high art to the screen um, but then kind of kind of 80s 90s onwards you get things like 10 things here about you which doesn't really give a shit uh, kind of what you think about Shakespeare and how it's supposed to be um, but is actually a very good adaptation of a, of a Shakespeare play yeah I think that Certainly, if you look at even something that's more direct than Ten Things I Hate About You, which just takes the basic idea and you know changes the setting and then adds its own jokes and Alice and Janney being great, mm. um, but yeah, also or, also disappearing halfway through the film. <laughs> yeah, after making some jokes about uh, the use of the word engorged, mm. um, but yeah, she's she's a delight. Uh, but if you look, even look at older things like um, A Forbidden Planet, which is you know based very loosely on The Tempest. Uh, you can definitely see that people can take the basics of it and and you know mold their own genre and their own ideas to to the basic bones of the story and create something that isn't you know fantastic fantastic planet is a great film but it's not exactly you know prestigious it's a you know a film about with a with a, a kind of wobbly robot and an invisible monster that leaves giant footprints in the sand mm. <laughs> you know it's it's not um it's high art it's kind of high pop art but it's not prestigious um but even if you look at something like the Baz Luhrmann version of Romeo and Juliet which does have the dialogue from the original play and then sets it in a, it puts in a modern setting uh that film is basically it, it wants to take the idea that this play can be fun it's not meant to be kind of dry and um kind of serious culture it, it kind of hypes it up and adds a sort of post Tarantino um vi- uh, uh, vividness to the direction i think that, that that is kind of an example of someone taking the play and saying and really kind of bending it to their own their own ends yeah kind of taking the reverence out of it mm, definitely um, do you think that in that sense that the um the Baz Luhrmann um Romeo and Juliet was kind of like a, a kind of watershed moment for um uh, Shakespeare adaptations because we certainly got a lot more of them after that it definitely seemed like a a watershed in terms of saying you know you can take this 
premise and you know the or, or you can take even the full text and just transplant it to modern day and there are certain milieus in which those things will work so uh, in that case it says if you take the idea of Romeo and Juliet and set it in sort of LA gangs mm-hmm. then it works pretty well because what you essentially have is a story about individuals working within certain um, structures in the case of you know whether it's family or a gang or just different uh, areas of society in general and they're fighting against it and that's a conflict that people that can be applied to pretty much anything that's why you can take Macbeth and move it from uh, 16th century Scotland or or whenever that is or 13th century Scotland and instead set it for example in the London police uh, as the version from I think 2001 with Christopher Eccleston as no sorry that's a uh, Othello, Othello was that one where you take Othello and you set it among, within the London Police in the early two thousands mm-hmm. uh, with Christopher Eccleston as Iago, or um, Macbeth. You set it in America in the police department and you get Scotland PA. Mm-hmm. You have the it, as long as you can find a sort of structure and an organisation within which to place these characters, you can pretty much um, tell the same story, and it's it's more or less maintains the kind of uh, the soul of the thing mm. um, you're an educated man Ed um, uh, <laughs> um, where did your uh, kind of like relationship with uh, uh, Shakespeare begin because like we all get kind of force fed it at school but yeah. you either get into it uh, kind of immediately or something changes like you, you read you, you kind of not fussed by you know you know, the first one you get thrown at and something else kind of grabs you. What what was it for you? Uh, I definitely liked it at school. Um, like Macbeth and Othello, I thought, were, were amazing plays and they really uh, appealed to me because they had such strong, vivid characters. Um, Macbeth and, and Lady Macbeth are two of the kind of the best characters in all of theatre. Hamlet is also another good one, although I didn't come to Hamlet until um, later when I watched the the uh, Olivier version, in which case it kind of, things kind of fell into place. So, oh, I see. I kind of understand mm-hmm. how this character is meant to be played now. Um, but my, I think I started to like, like Shakespeare um, through all the weirdest of places, the Disney cartoon Gargoyles, in which the in which Macbeth is a an antagonist. Um, Gargoyles was about essentially about gargoyles that live in on a castle in Scotland in I'd say the eleven hundreds and they get cursed to remain stone until a bunch of things have to happen. I won't go into the details and they end up in New York in the twentieth century. And um it's a really and what was interesting is on the one hand you have this high fantasy thing, but they the show was littered with lots of high culture references and as it went along they added in more and more Shakespeare things. So Macbeth was introduced in like the fourth episode as the antagonist, um, and then later on they introduced more elements to the play. Uh, Oberon and all the characters of A Midsummer Night's Dream are introduced in a later season, and they're a big part of it. And kind of through seeing all these characters crop up, it kind of made me more interested in Shakespeare and want to go out and and uh, investigate it more. Mm. Yeah. That's kind of weird that you should say that. That's kind of a very unusual route into Shakespeare. Um, mm, yeah. But I think that was kind of the intention of the people who made that show is they wanted to take something that was, you know, had this kind of high fancy action cyborgs and things, and then they would 
use it to create kind of a melange of all world history and culture. So there's like stuff in there that's all about the ancient Egyptian gods and um, various mythological beasts kind of introduced in the show as it went along. Mm. And, and But the Shakespeare thing was the thing that really uh, stuck out to me because it was the first thing to make the Shakespeare characters seem kind of uh, accessible. Mm. Interesting. Um, I um, was kind of introduced to Shakespeare at school um, through Midsummer Night's Dream, which is a kind of mm. a pretty good kind of start of Shakespeare, and I just didn't I didn't go for it at all. I wasn't like kind of jazzed by it or anything. Nothing kind of um, grabbed me about it at all. But then the next year in GCSE English, we read Julius Caesar, and that remains my favourite Shakespeare play. Um, I think one of Shakespeare's stabbiest plays um <laughs> but also one you don't see adapted very often but i think probably because no. it's got it kind of sticks quite rigidly to a historical uh um kind of setting and real people that existed um and it's kind of a bit more difficult to kind of uh, mold like you say in a kind of malleable way um but yeah i kind of really wish i'd have ever seen i always hear about it the the um the orson wells voodoo macbeth um, mm. Which is, you know, the one where he kind of said it in Port-au-Prince, and uh, uh, with a cast of entirely black actors, which back then would have been uh, kind of something not, you'd not expected to have seen outside kind of specialist kind of black rep theatres. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it, it's a really good one, but um, and it's always pretty well served by the uh, the Mankiewicz uh, adaptation because obviously, if you're going to cast anyone as Mark Antony, why not Marlon Brando? <laughs> yeah, they, that is actually a, a really, really good version. Even though, again, like the the uh, Keanu Reeves version, his voice, you know, even though he does that thing that all American actors do when they try and play Shakespeare, where they make it sound a little like a mixture of both, <laughs> and get a really high, high kind of uh, uh, kind of make it sound really grand. Uh, he, you know, he has that that intensity which really serves him well. Mm. It's interesting, um, kind of going off your point about kind of Americans doing Shakespeare. Um, uh, I know you've seen it because I, I screened it. We we watched uh, Looking for Richard together, which is a uh, uh, a film that I'd recommend everyone watch. It's uh, Al Pacino makes a documentary about a making uh, a kind of a, a performance of, of Richard the uh, Third with a kind of a very good all star cast of like people like Alec Baldwin and Kevin Spacey and people like Winona Ryder and people like that. Um, but it's also kind of a documentary he speaks to kind of authorities on Shakespeare and other actors, and they kind of hit across this thing of like why is there this kind of reticence um uh, amongst American actors to think that like they can't touch Shakespeare um and they can't do it properly um whereas you know obviously if you watch Keanu Reeves, you probably back that up um, <laughs> but that's not the case, is it but there just seems to be this kind of block there that there's a thought that it's not going to be anywhere near as a good an interpretation unless you've got someone kind of wrapping their received pronunciation tonsils around it. Yeah, I mean, I've certainly seen great live Shakespeare in the States. I saw uh, the Merry Wives of Windsor performed in Washington, D.C. a few years ago, um, and that was great. That was an all-American cast, but, you know, again, they were kind of doing the the, the trying to do uh, an English accent thing for it, and, and they were they were great, and it was a really really fun it was one of the the rare examples i've seen of where you watch a shakespeare comedy and it really comes across mm. because i kind of feel like the tragedies are they have a, they have some jokes which kind of fly by 
but you're watching it for the drama and uh, the comedies they're all meant to be funny and a lot of the references and the wordplay is is you know lost on modern audiences um, and I think that's probably why they they suffer a lot more um, but yeah I think there is definitely a uh, an elitism about it about the the fact that Americans can't do Shakespeare and uh, that I, I think probably will never really go away um, mm. uh, unless you know people just stop caring about Shakespeare which is like yeah, who cares just do it <laughs> yeah yeah um, and it's yeah it's it, you never hear people saying well you know British actors shouldn't do Arthur Miller you know what I mean mm. it's kind of ridiculous I suppose Arthur Miller is a, you know not quite as ingrained in the kind of cultural fabric as Shakespeare is yeah and and I guess Shakespeare is kind of a, a, a titan of uh, of drama, and particularly of, of British drama. And I think that um, because he's he's someone that uh, is held so dear by certainly the cultural elite in in England, that there's probably just a sense that um, no one's to touch it, and, and there's probably quite a bit of a rabid response to it when Americans try it on. Mm, yeah. I mean, Kevin Spacey's kind of done a lot to kind of break that down because, yeah, uh, obviously, kind of coming coming over here, taking our you know artistic director jobs, <laughs> um, you know, doing kind of premium work and all that is uh, it's kind of outrageous. Um, but yeah, he's kind of uh, been as uh, kind of prominent as anyone because he could have had a very kind of cozy career in Hollywood playing supporting roles and kind of flashy parts every now and then. But now he just kind of well. He breaks out with kind of appearances in Call of Duty video games, um, <laughs> whilst uh, being the kind of artistic director of one of the most respected theatres in the world. Yeah, he. I think he's probably done the most to break that stigma, mm. um, and to just basically say that Shakespeare is the world's playwright. He's not just a British one, even though I think he's probably um, more beloved than uh, in Britain than than elsewhere in the world. Mm. Um, but you know, that is it's hardly as if. Um, the British have a uh, a monopoly on Shakespeare because you know I think some of the best uh, cinematic adaptations of Shakespeare were all done by Akira Kurosawa. Yeah, he had quite a good um, run on them, pun intended. Um, uh, Throne of Blood is uh, is uh, probably probably the best one. Would you say it's my favourite? Yeah, I think it's it's a pretty stunning rendition of of Macbeth. Um, and unlike most versions, it ends with uh, Macbeth being turned into a pincushion. Mm-hmm. He certainly um, just, takes a few arrows. Yeah, just uh, the slings and arrows. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that he uh, that that's one of the one that is is a really great example. Of that and also Ran, which is just a great epic um, uh, reimagining of of King Lear. Those ones really demonstrate how. I think one of the things that's interesting about Shakespeare compared to say like Dickens, you don't really get many modern reinterpretations of Dickens. You get like that Ethan Hawke version of Great Expectations. Yeah. Um, but um, pretty much all adaptations of Dickens, everyone always sets them in Dickensian London. They don't really try and update it that often. Whereas I think, I think because he wrote with such specificity about the time in which he lived, whereas because Shakespeare always set his in... In what even to his to him was the distant past, and they're all kind of taken from history or very loosely adapted from history. There was already a remove, so people don't feel like you have to get the specifics right. Mm, and set because, in kind of all far flung exotic locations as well. 
yeah, or with you know fairies and magic, so and witches. So I think there's that his his work is uh, the the characters and the you know relationships are very specific, but the settings are kind of quite general. So it's possible for you to you know reimagine Richard the Third and set it in a uh, kind of fascist Britain with Ian, Mo- Ian McKellen riding around on a tank. Mm. Yeah, yeah, because uh, that was like a very rare example of um, Ian McKellen at the time hadn't done a lot of kind of, uh, he's not as kind of famous as he is now, mm. uh, having been in kind of some of the biggest film franchises uh, in the world. Um, but he wrote that, didn't he? Yeah, he wrote that and helped uh, imagine it uh, and uh, uh, that's one that I I enjoy a great deal. Mm. Um, it's incredibly weird. <laughs> it's a very very weird uh, idea to take something like Richard the Third, which is one of the ones that's based on a very specific historical event that actually occurred not that long before um, Shakespeare was alive, and to just kind of create this entirely like imagined version of Britain. But it's it's one that I I just love the. Uh, the version that they came up with and the world that they create. Mm, topical, given that he was uh, reburied today. Yeah, I marched through my old my hometown of Market Bosworth and passed two of the pubs that I lived in when I lived there. Right. Yeah. For like um, listeners who don't know, Ed was an alcoholic all his life. <laughs> he lived in two pubs in Market Bosworth. Um, I was is... like o- I was like Obelix from the Asterix cartoons. I was just dropped into a <laughs> vat of beer when I was a baby. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, he was uh, yeah repatriated today to much uh, uh, consternation to people who think he should have been <laughs> stayed buried in a car park, um, <laughs> which you know seems crazy to me. Um, yeah, have you got uh, any kind of like completely offbeat uh, adaptations of Shakespeare that are kind of uh, worth recommending? Uh, I mean, there are a lot of kind of uh, ones that are very loose adaptations, like The Lion King, for example, is mm. uh, actually a very good version of Hamlet, um, but obviously it's got lions in it, so it's quite loose. Is there any kind of like, more uh, kind of esoteric ones you can uh, you can kind of think of? Yeah, I think The Lion King probably would have benefited if they could have had a scene where Simba held like Timon's skull in his hand. Mm. And then there was um, a flashback to be like, uh, <laughs> here, do you remember this guy from five minutes ago? Um but uh, one from a few years ago that I really like and uh, was kind of a, a big deal at the time and then completely seemed to fade away was Rafe Fine's version of Coriolanus, mm-hmm. which is a very difficult and weird play uh, that he managed to adapt for uh, the, 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 the screen in a way that you know kind of made sense. He set it in some kind of a crumbling Eastern European country and he made it kind of half Shakespeare adaptation, half action film, half commentary on the role of the media in politics. Uh, and it's really, really good. And it's great if you want to see him screaming angrily for two hours. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of his most, it's basically his performance from In Bruges for two hours. Uh, wow. It's really good. And um, Gerard Butler's surprisingly good in it. Yeah. It was a film that kind of like a lot of people talked about, but kind of, I have to say, it kind of passed me by a bit. Uh, I, I kind of it's, it's one of those ones that um, you kind of always see, and then you think, well, oh, they've just kind of stuck it in a war zone. Um, mm. But like, from a, I didn't see it, but like everyone I know, yourself included, had seen it. Kind of uh, had nothing but nice things to say about it. I have to say that I am exceptionally fond of uh, Ten Things I Hate About You, um, mm-hmm. which is a film I saw I think three times in the cinema, um, 
Uh, and although I uh, am fully uh, open to admit its uh, inherent faults, uh, it's a film that's made with uh, such charm, um, even you can probably overlook its uh, more kind of shoddier elements. Yeah, that is that is one that is, it is hugely fun, mainly I think because uh, Heath Ledger is a lot of fun. He was very, he's very charismatic in that role. Mm-hmm. And I think that his his charisma and also Julia Stiles' charisma go a long way to um, offsetting the fact that the play is kind of weirdly misogynist in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, they managed to take the idea of uh, kind of breaking or taming a woman and make it actually uh, a little more even-handed and, and uh, progressive. Mm, absolutely. and But yeah, it's, it's kind of patchy as anything, that film, in the sense that there's like, like I mentioned earlier, Alice and Jenny's uh, kind of very showy character just disappears without any kind of mention and then other characters, there's a character who's obsessed with Shakespeare, just appears halfway through the film, uh, kind of just for no reason other than to give a bit of love interest to David Cromaltz. But um, yeah, it's a film in which um, Robin seeks the uh, the kind of advice of the Joker about <laughs> how to pick up um, Alice Mack, which is that appears to be uh, the plot of that film. Um, but yeah, also uh, a, a kind of film in which I thought... Um, this Daryl Chill Mitchell actor, he's going to go on to great things. Um, but no, he didn't. He just played the same same <laughs> role in every film he was in. Although I did watch Galaxy Quest the other day. That was, uh, um, I've seen it before, but he's in that. And just gives me an excuse to mention Galaxy Quest, I think it's brilliant. Yeah, that, that one is uh, hugely fun. Mm, but not an adaptation of Shakespeare. Mm, yeah, not even loosely. No, but it does in- include the Alan Rickman character, who is a kind of like yeah. a stereotypical kind of classically trained thespian uh, who is uh, frustrated by a role in a kind of uh, crappy genre TV show. So, ha, there you go. I squeezed it in a crowbarred uh, Galaxy Quest reference into that. Um, I think think that he's a great um, archetype of the English need to be a working actor, Mm. which is that you can go from the the highs of performing the the kind of great works of, of drama on stage to being in, uh, you know, kind of various crappy, low-budget uh, sci-fi schlock yeah. just because you need the work. I kind of always think of Uncle Monty from uh, from Windell and I, and he's just like, mm. I will never play the Dane. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, I kind of long for the day that I could say that without a note of irony, uh, like Uncle Monty. Uh, do you think, I was, I was thinking about this... Um, Earlier, do you think it's kind of a shame that there are very few uh, screen actors who kind of do Shakespeare throughout their career anymore? Because obviously Olivier did it and Branagh did it, and there are there are various people who still do it on stage. But I, I've always think you know one of the great things about Shakespeare's work is uh, he wrote parts that basically actors could do throughout their lives. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're young, you can be Romeo. When you're like kind of older and going to middle age, you can get age into doing. Uh, Macbeth and um, and Hamlet and things like that and Othello if you want to be really offensive yeah. um, <laughs> as as so many people are um, uh, and then eventually you get to the point where you can be Prospero and Lear yeah. um, I think it's kind of a shame that there aren't, you know, you'll get people who will dip in and out of Shakespeare on screen th- uh, throughout their career but the, there's, you know maybe uh, Branner with his uh, success directing Thor and Cinderella can get a, a, a big, big screen Lear together down the down the line. Mm, I don't know how that's come across 
uh, on your side of the pond, Ed. But uh, Kenneth Branagh's uh, um, Cinderella has, has, has been a kind of hot topic this week on the news. It was on the kind of the radio news about how it's uh, uh, it's undone all the good work for female role models that was done by Frozen, uh, mm. and is now kind of like uh, sending Disney back to some kind of Stone Age in terms of kind of uh, feminist progression. Yeah, there's definitely been talk of that over here. It's not been it's not been kind of widely discussed, but certainly on you know um, like the Dissolved did a big piece on it, pretty much saying the same thing, um, where they basically <laughs> say that. As opposed to, you know, you and I didn't like Maleficent all that much, but that was a pretty radical reimagining of uh, the Sleeping Beauty uh, mythos that kind of had a kind of feminist slant placing it, the onus pretty much entirely on the female characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea of doing what is essentially just a pretty straightforward remake of Cinderella with no tweaks definitely does feel like uh, a step back in a way. Because mm. it's the, probably the most passive of all the princesses. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She literally does. Yeah, she Including the two that are asleep for most of it. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Which is not a great thing. Anyway, back to that thing we were talking about, uh, Shakespeare. Um, kind of, on a kind of a, a similar point, I'm not going to answer your question because I can't. Um, but like, <laughs> I know that I know that Ian McKellen was very upset. Not very upset, but. Um, he um, was kind of like uh, slightly rueful of the fact that he didn't get to be in the film adaptation of The Merchant of Venice because yes. uh, The Merchant of Venice, for those of you know, kind of contains Shakespeare's only openly gay character and he wanted to right. play him, um, but that part went to Jeremy Irons. Um, so I think in terms of uh, kind of Shakespeare's plays and his oeuvre offering uh, some kind of, uh, uh, kind of tick list to play all those kind of parts, I think that's probably the only example I can think of. Um, I know that Kenneth Branagh has given it a go, but he kind of yeah. is more behind the camera these days. Yeah, and and he certainly seems to have uh, accepted at some point that uh, he needs to make Marvel films, mm. <laughs> or he needs to he or you know uh, Jack Ryan films. He he seems to have moved beyond uh, the point where he makes Shakespeare stuff to being a, like a commercially viable, successful director. Mm. Uh, and does all the Shakespeare stuff on stage, which I don't know if that's him kind of acknowledging that whatever heat he had coming off of uh, coming off of his version of of Henry V uh, has completely dissipated and allowed him to you know make Hamlet and shoot it in seventy millimeter when no one had shot a film in seventy millimeter in quite a long time. Mm. Uh, yeah, that, I think that's kind of a shame that he the the. Uh, there, there doesn't seem to be a system in place that would allow him to do it. But at the same time, you know, maybe he would have just made a lot of. He, at a certain point, he probably would have just been completely worn down by trying to think of new cinematic ways to realise those stories. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and I, I just thought of another um, really interesting Shakespeare adaptation: uh, My Own Private Idaho. Yeah, it's Henry the Fifth, and another one is it uh, fourth? Four. Yeah. Um, which is, is a great is that one. the Half Blood Prince? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. That one's uh, again features Keanu Reeves, but uh, in one in which he doesn't have to try and pretend to speak in iambic pentameter, so uh, that that uh, helps. But yeah, that's a a great way of taking the basic uh, premise of a story and then saying, well, maybe he's not a prince. Maybe he's just kind of a gay hustler. 
Right. Okay. And uh, reimagining it in a re- in a way that's uh, very distinct and unique to Gus Van Zandt, rather than you know trying to recreate um, people's imagined idea of what a Shakespeare play should look like. Mm, yeah. Um, going just going back to that point you were making about kind of playing certain Shakespeare roles at certain points in your life, it always bothered me that they always cast Hamlet so old. Like, mm. um, obviously, Kenneth Branagh in his version was in his forties. Uh, Olivier probably much the same, but yeah. that's their teenage son. <laughs> it's, it's never played really uh, kind of age appropriate. I know that things like Romeo and Juliet, Juliet can't really be played as age appropriate because she's like totally kind of thirteen-year-old kind of yeah, yeah, uh, slightly reprehensible in this day and age. Um, but yeah, Hamlet's never played young. Yeah, I think it's it, that's probably just because it's seen as such a big role that actors just no one really trusts them to take on the role if they're young. Mm. It's like you feel like they really need to have uh, a bit of uh, a bit more experience under their belt, um, which I think is why it it, you can, it kind of makes more sense. For example, in the Ethan Hawke version of Hamlet, where it's set in the kind of corporate world, and the idea of him being sort of an arrested development son in his thirties. I believe works for a company called Denmark Inc. or something like that. Oh, subtle. Yeah, there, there, there is. There are some examples where the adaptation isn't quite perfect. Mm. Um, I think but, the, the, but, yeah. the the Baz Luhrmann one where he's like, uh, "Look at my sword," and then it just zooms in on his gun and it says "sword nine millimeter." Uh, <laughs> that's pretty egregious as they go. Yeah, whereas you know some versions of Macbeth will be like. Oh, you know, when he says, is this a dagger they seen before me? They say, oh, maybe it's like the shadow on the wall or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's, uh, there's many different ways that you can play Shakespeare, and um, those two examples are probably not the best. Mm, yeah, yeah. You can change the words. Like, he won't mind. <laughs> You're not going to get sued. Um, but yeah, they didn't the... have the, yeah, they didn't have 9mm pistols in, uh, in Verona, so I think you can just have him take gun. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just before we kind of uh, round up, what's the best uh, Shakespeare you've seen kind of live on stage in a kind of, uh, you know, one of those 3D movies that they call plays? <laughs> uh, uh, that um, Mary Wise of Windsor was probably the best. It certainly was the one. I think that's mainly because my expectations going in were so, uh, they weren't like low, um, but they were just kind of, they they were pretty much, fairly measured because it wasn't a play I was hugely familiar with and you know all I knew was it was one of the Falstaff ones mm. so I just kind of thought oh you know this will be fun and then going in it really just kind of really brought it to life you know in a real way that made me think oh this is actually a really fun and really enjoyable play and it made uh, the comedy of it really work particularly in just just you know seeing actors who are experienced with the material able to find the subtleties and the way that certain deliveries can really bring the house down yeah I haven't really got a best one. I've seen a lot of them, and I can't mm. really remember a lot of them. Um, but the coolest one I saw was uh, uh, um, the Sheffield Crucible with uh, it was uh, Othello with uh, Lester and McNulty from The Wire. Uh, I heard that was a great one. Yeah, I mean it was it was it was not amazing, but just seeing those two together, it was uh, pretty fucking awesome. Um, <laughs> but yeah. Um, just kind of reminds me, uh, I'm going to kind of sign off this episode now with, I think, one of my favourite ever quotes uh, about kind of screenwriting and, and uh, tone. Uh, that uh, I read uh, David Mamet's book, uh, Bambi versus Godzilla, which is really a, Great a book. book about the kind of uh, uh, movie business in general, really. 
and I'm going to paraphrase this quote, but it was like saying something along the lines of, um, uh, you know, a kid comes home from college um, and, you know, he finds out that his uh, uncle's murdered his dad, but his dad's hanging around as a ghost and his uncle's fucking his mum and, you know, his best mates turn up and they're trying to kind of double cross him. If you get that wrong, that's kind of Sunset Beach, daytime soap. If you get that right, that's Hamlet. (laughs) And that always kind of uh, summed up to me that you can literally make... Uh, good and bad out of everything you can possibly imagine yeah. Um, but yeah um, next week uh, we're going to uh, come back and kind of revisit our artist profile um, we're doing Susan Sarandon, we're not literally doing Susan Sarandon because um, that would make for a very uncomfortable uh, hour of podcasting uh, not least for Susan Sarandon um, and yeah um, I'm looking forward to that one Yeah, but although the idea of people doing Susan Sarandon will probably come up a fair bit just yes. because um, of the various roles that she's taken over the course of her career, uh, particularly recently where she seems to have been the uh, on two separate occasions cast as uh, teachers who uh, statutory raped their, their uh, students mm. in 30 Rock and in uh, That's My Boy. Yeah, yeah. Oh, God, have I got to watch That's My Boy for this? Uh, well, not for this, but, you know, I think to keep up with the canon of... <laughs> the truly awful films that Adam Sandler's made. Yeah, that's bad news. Um, so yeah, uh, we're back for that. If you uh, uh, can stick around for that, if you like this show or any others, please review us, uh, subscribe to us, follow us, all that kind of malarkey. Um, so until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye from me.